If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, as we move chapter by chapter through this gospel, uh, chapter 16 of Matthew, as I noted last week, is a turning point uh, in this gospel, and we see it very clearly in the text before us, verses 13 to 23. There are uh, several firsts that appear uh, on the, the page before us in chapter 16. For the first time in the gospel, Jesus begins to speak about his necessary suffering and death, and that's going to give uh, a, a kind of new shape and direction uh, to this gospel intended by the Spirit in the writing of Matthew. Uh, the necessary suffering and death of Christ. For the first time in this same passage, Jesus asked his own disciples to come to him and to speak with him about himself. He wants to know, what are people saying about me? And more importantly, what, what do you say about me? Who, who do you say that I am? And then for the first time here, Jesus begins to speak about the church at least in English, the English word church, ecclesia, this glorious promise that I will build my church. And we see those firsts uh, unfold before us in this text, and we'll see the significance of each of them. So listen now to God's word, Matthew 16, verses 13 uh, to 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of of man. The disciples at this point in their ministry with Jesus are coming to a crossroads. And in our Christian faith, we, t we come at times to crossroads, points at which we either have to make a, a decision or points at which we are coming to a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That is very much what is happening at this point in Matthew's gospel with the disciples. Not only back in chapter 10, that great uh, chapter on missions, had Jesus sent, uh, told his disciples that he's going to send them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This frightening, daunting uh, picture. Even there he said, you're going to be hated and persecuted by many. But now they're hearing 
that their own shepherd, their own Messiah, their own Lord, must suffer himself and be crucified and risen. And not only for the first time are they hearing this about the necessary death and cross of their Lord, but in the next verses, which we will consider next week, uh, Jesus is going to say to them, if you're going to come after me, you also must deny, you must deny yourself and you also must bear your own cross. When the disciples hear this word about the cross, they knew full well, just as we know, that crosses were meant for one thing, and that is to bring a person's life to an end. And that's easy to overlook, but how radical that is. Why would this be such a central characteristic of the church of Christ, of Christ's band of followers, this bearing of a cross? They're having to learn this. And of course, we know it has everything to do with the very person and identity of who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. But they're having to learn it, and with difficulty. It's why Jesus asks his disciples this question about his identity. So look at verse 13. He came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? There's several uh, titles given to Jesus here. Son of Man, some would say, is his favorite self-designation. He's the Son of Man. That's what he would refer to himself as perhaps more than anything. Uh, He comes in uh, flesh and blood. Uh, He is living. He comes as a man to represent humanity or the people of God in particular and to bear upon himself the sin of humanity or of the church, of his called-out people. And here he goes to Caesarea Philippi. It's directly north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent much of his ministry. It's about 20 miles north. It's right on the border of Israel to the rest of the Roman Empire and the rest of the world, the northernmost part of Israel. And it's interesting that as Jesus is drawing attention to his very identity here, he's doing so on the very border between Israel and the rest of the world. Uh, In other words, his identity is directly connected to his mission and and the gospel going to the nations. And, And Jesus raises the subject here of his identity by raising a question, using a question. This is not only the first time, I believe it is the only time that Jesus specifically draws his disciples to himself to ask the question about who he is, which is quite striking with how much weight and importance we place upon knowing who Jesus is. We have one time here in which Jesus is specifically asking, who do you say I am? Do you understand who I am? And he asks it in the form of a question. Uh, We know our Lord was an expert at communicating truth by using questions. Getting at the heart of the matter by questions. And that's what he's doing here. Questions are powerful. Uh, They can shape and define a person's life. Think about the question, what is your calling in life? What, what, why are you here? What are you doing here? What, what has drawn you here this morning? What is your purpose in life? Or how about the pointed question that some of us have asked or we've had asked to ourselves, asked, asked of us, uh, will you marry me? 
that can shape a person's life. If you're young or you're, you're a young student, a child or a youth here, have you, have you been asked the question, what are you going to do when you grow up? Right? Some of us adults are asking that question of ourselves still. Uh, but there's many questions that can shape a person's life. But arguably, many people would argue, the most important question is the question that Jesus raises in verse 15. This is the question that's going to give uh, more shape to a person's life than any other question. Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? And the reason that question is so important is because how one relates or understands who Jesus is is going to determine whether that person is going to live inside or outside the will of God. If Jesus is, as the general public is saying, John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, One prophet in the line of many Old Testament prophets. I have no reason, I have no inclination to submit my life to him as my Savior and as my Lord. And I am left in my sin and my misery. What's so significant about Peter's confession here? Not only that it's the result of God's divine revelation, that's what we're told, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That a person can hear the gospel message, the content of the gospel, but not come to trust in Christ. That requires a divine work of God Himself. A supernatural work of opening the eyes of the heart to take hold of Christ in trust and faith. That indeed is significant about His confession. We know that's the ultimate cause. But his confession is significant as well because Jesus' identity was not obvious. It wasn't plain for all to see. We see that unfolding in the text before us. They're struggling with understanding who this Messiah is and what he's up to, even for those closest to him. His identity doesn't seem to be obvious to them. And that, not, that, that may surprise us, living in the 21st century with 2,000 years of church history, many creeds and councils and confessions now detailing for us who Jesus is. We know that Jesus has a dual nature. He is truly divine, truly human. As the Nicene Creed puts it, eternally begotten. As we read the Scriptures, we know full well that this this Christ had no beginning. He was from everlasting. We read that in Colossians chapter 1. True God from true God. But that was not first plain to the disciples as they're ministering with Him. They're They're having to come to see that. They didn't have that fuller form theology of the person of Jesus. And and right here in chapter 16, we've already seen the kind of blind enmity or hatred that the Pharisees had toward Jesus. They didn't understand Him, or if they did, their hearts were simply hard. We have the general public. They're saying in verse 14, perhaps John the Baptist, Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But even his followers are just beginning in certain ways to grasp who He is. And friends, we live in a culture today that in so many ways is 
either blind or, or confused as to who Jesus is according to what the Bible says. Uh, there is a book called Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And in it, the author captures well, I think, the diverse and confusing views that people have of Jesus out there. He identifies 12 false views or false Christs uh, in, in the public today. I'll just list a handful of them. I won't go through all 12. One, Jesus the mascot. That is, I will live my life as I please. Jesus will kind of represent that. Maybe cheer me on. Two, Jesus, one option among many. It works for you. That's great. But that's one option. There's, there's other ways to go. Three, Jesus the moral example, that he came exclusively to demonstrate a good and decent life. Four, Jesus the national patriot, the idea that faith can become one with national and political aims, when we know that the church is set apart always from the world. Five, Jesus the social justice warrior, he came exclusively to address social ills. Six, I hesitate, but I'll say, Jesus the teddy bear. Kind of silly, uh, but perhaps that he came to simply kind of coddle or soothe our feelings. Uh, Peter's confession is significant because he's beginning to understand who this Jesus truly is. And, And it's indicated by the titles he uses to address the Lord Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and the emphasis upon these titles is evidenced by the number of definite articles. It's recognized by commentators four times. In the original, it's literally, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. The Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Peter was right, at least conceptually at this point. At least categorically, he has used two titles legitimate to address the Lord Jesus. And so we could say perhaps he would have been right on a a theology exam. Unlike most of the times when Peter blurts out something, uh, Jesus has to correct him. Jesus actually commends him. Blessed are you. Simon, Simon Peter. Think about these two titles. These are important. He is the son of the living God. He's a son, the son of God. He's truly God, but as was pointed out in Sunday school, I think last week, unlike the Roman gods, unlike the gods and the pagan gods that even were in Caesarea Philippi at this very time, this Lord, this God, is of flesh and blood. He's not a mere statue who cannot speak or hear. This this Messiah, this Son, this God, uh, can be heard, speaks, can be touched. And therefore, because He is living, He can actually call people to Himself. False gods, dead gods, cannot speak, cannot call people. 
He's the Son of the living God, and He is the Christ, meaning the Anointed One, the King. It has a royal emphasis to it. Perhaps we'll hear more about that this evening in Psalm 72, this royal psalm. Another important aspect of the God of Christianity. He is not only personal, therefore able to call people to Himself, but He is King, He is Lord, and therefore has the right and the authority to call people to Himself. And yet, while He recognizes Jesus as the Christ here, His expectations of what this Messiah should and should not do are misaligned. That when Jesus begins speaking about His necessary death, His suffering, what does Peter do? He can't handle it. It does not fit the category for him. And he's rebuked for it. It's so important. We can have theology clear in our minds, yet be far from the will of God. David Garland comments on this passage. He says, Jesus concentrates His energies on patiently instructing His disciples to unlearn everything they have been taught or have believed about the role of the Messiah. They will learn the lesson with difficulty. Nothing happens as they expect or wish. Everyone has trouble learning that victory comes through giving one's life, not taking others' lives. They're going to have to learn this with difficulty. Christians learn this with difficulty. What Christ is truly after. This Christ is going to a cross. The disciples are beginning to learn that. And if anyone wants to go and be with Him, they're going to have to go to that cross as well. Now notice next what this confession that Peter gives is directly tied to, or we might say what it is inseparable from. Blessed are you, Simon, Jesus says. And then verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We heard it read earlier from Ephesians 2. We know that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. We might even say Peter first. In in every list of the apostles in the Gospels, Peter always comes first. might say he's the lead apostle. And the prophets, Christ being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple. And yet, what a remarkable thing that Jesus would call and use such a one as Peter as a kind of rock. Remember, Jesus named Simon Peter when He first called him to be a disciple. Perhaps a play on on words. He he is Peter, Peter, which means rock. But that He uses weak, sinful, limited people. Sometimes He uses loud mouths, like Peter. Sometimes timid people, like Timothy. Or the doubtful, like Thomas. Or those less known in the Gospels, like Andrew. He uses these people in the building of His church. But I want us to see what this church truly rests upon. Because undergirding all of it is the Word of God. It's a promise. It's the promise of our Lord Jesus. And here's five words, at least in the, in the English, 
to really center our attention and establish a person's confidence in the church. Verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. Every one of those words is perhaps worth a sermon itself. Each of those words carries not only great significance, but real application. Consider each of them. He says, I will build my church. Peter may be an important stone in the building. We may be called living stones. But the builder, the architect of the church is Jesus Christ. There's no pastor, there's no elder, there's no theologian who can build the church of Christ. Mark this passage, Psalm 127. You may know it already well. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Well, of course, laborers must work. They must labor. Watchmen, they must stay awake. But if they are not trusting in the Lord, it's building a house on sand. It is going to collapse. It's going to fall. The strength is not there. I just read yesterday morning in my devotions, Moses being called by the Lord. Why did Moses or Jeremiah, similarly, when called by God to go and preach, say, Lord, not I. I stutter or I'm too young. I'm slow of speech. Why? Because they were measuring their strength by their own ability at that, at that point rather than the power and sufficiency of God. We can do that. Churches can do that. Christians can do that. And yet as we see and treasure Christ and His sufficiency, He does great and powerful, marvelous things through weak vessels. And that's the most glorious and wonderful thing. Because he receives the glory due his name. We're passive in the process. Just used as vessels. So he is the architect. I will build my church. The work is future. The work is ongoing. Now that may bother some of us. Because we may not like things undone. Things not yet finished. If you're like me, every day you keep a to-do list. I got stickies all over the place, right? Things to do. If you're like me, if you noticed, there's, there's always more to add. There's, just, there's always more to add on the to-do list. It's never finished. Faith is never finished until we come to the end of our life, take our last breath, till Jesus our Lord returns. It's ongoing. It's a construction process. Think about the Middle Ages, some of the cathedrals built, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Uh, these were oftentimes not only whole community efforts, uh, along with the stonecutters and the masons, whole communities who work on this, but they often lasted multiple generations, 20, 40, 80 years. Few who started that work were expecting to be there when it was finished. What an important mindset. I'm participating in something that is ongoing. You've probably heard it said the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. But it's even more than a marathon. It's more like an, an ultra-long-distance relay. Right? We're, we're privileged to take the baton and pass that on. 
to come and participate and pass that on to those who come to Christ and children who come to Christ for the next generation. I will build. The church is Christ's community, but it's also our Lord's labor of love. It's a labor of love. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship. You are the workmanship, the craftsmanship of God in Jesus Christ. We are a people in whom God is building and working and shaping. We know Peter later in his own ministry will write those words, you are a chosen people and we are like living stones being built up together. Like pieces of stone taken out of a quarry Chiseled, shaped, put together, built. He's building. He's working. Our Lord is not passive, sitting back, waiting to see what will happen with the church. No, He is, by His Spirit, at work. He's building His church. He is very active. He's working in us. He's sanctifying us. He is teaching us, helping us, at times carrying us loving us, correcting and disciplining us. He's working. I will build my church. My church. Ultimately, the church universal and every particular local congregation. That's not ours. It's not mine. It is the Lord Jesus's. It is His church. He is the head of the body. There's one head. The church is His bride. You think about all of the church's brokenness, its peaks and valleys in various seasons, its peculiar people. The church is His. It's His people. On Friday morning, my dad, my father back in Washington, sent me an email. It was a forward uh, informing me that uh, a gentleman named Paul Johnson, age 91, who was a mentor of mine for a number of years, uh, and really, probably the, the central person outside my family that encouraged me toward local church ministry passed away, passed into glory, 91 years old. Uh, Paul was a unique individual in a number of ways. He was the kind of guy that when you called him, and he said hello, and I said, hey, Paul, this is, this is Will Snyder. He was getting older, so I would usually include my last name to make sure he knew who it was. And he would say, Is this the Will Snyder? (laughs) He made you feel important. He made you feel important. He had others in mind all the time. And it came out in his attitude toward the church. He had a high regard. He spoke with a high regard for the church. With deep care, with a compliment toward the church. And we need to do that. We need to speak with high regard for the people of God. Because it's His people. It's His. I will build my church. What makes a church so unique? Sorry to break it to you. It's not because you're here. You're important. But it's because Christ is here. Christ is in His church in a way in a special way, unlike any other place. Yes, he is omnipresent, but he is with his church. And that's what sets it apart. It is him. It's why churchless Christianity does not work. 
Because it is the church that Jesus promised to build. It's the church He promised to be with, His called out, gathered people. It's the church He has redeemed. Now this the disciples could grasp. The promise of building the people of God. But what they could not grasp, and certainly what Peter could not stomach, which we will see all the more next week, is how this church is built. It's no coincidence that as, after Jesus makes the promise to build His church, that verse 21 comes. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples He must suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Now, they understood the concept of resurrection at the end of, at the end of history, but they did not understand a Messiah coming to be crucified and risen right in the middle of history. This was new. This was transforming. This was hard to get their heart and their mind around. And yet it is the core of the good news that one has died for our sin and he has risen. He is the first fruits for many to come. That we too will be raised but the disciples are going to have to learn, just as we learn, that God does not obtain victory or deliverance or true life for His people by simply lording over them or by pressing His law upon them and bending their will to that law. First and foremost, fundamentally, He is giving His life for them. He's going to take upon Himself on that cross their guilt their sin in order to forgive, to forgive them and to forgive their sins. And he is saying to his disciples, now you come and die with me. Now you come and die with me. You die to yourself. This is why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We're going to sing, when I survey the wondrous cross. This cross is indeed the place and that point in history where Christ took upon Himself our sin and atoned for sin. But the cross also becomes that central symbol by which I orient my life. That I am to die to myself, die to my sin, and to, to follow after Him. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this cross for the glory of Your Word, and for the hope that we have in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for the glorious body of Christ, the church. Lord, may we see its her value and worth because this church, this community is Yours. And so, Lord, as we treasure You, we will treasure Your people. And Lord, we pray that that what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago would be applied to the hearts and minds of people who may not know You, who, who might trust and rest in this new life. Yes, for the forgiveness of sins, but also for a new transformation of life in following after You. And continue to do that work, Lord, in each of us together. Encourage us. Help us to encourage one another as we seek after you. 
And we pray this all uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen.